Welcome. The following presentation from Answers in CME is part of an educational activity titled At the Forefront of Therapy for COVID-19, Early Identification and Treatment of Outpatients at Higher Risk of Progression to Severe Illness. To access the full program and supporting materials, please visit the activity URL in the episode description. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Pfizer Incorporated. Hello, my name is Davey Smith. I am Chief of Infectious Diseases and Global Public Health at UC San Diego. I'm going to be discussing early identification and treatment of outpatients at higher risk for COVID-19 progression. So what are the risks for disease progression for COVID-19? Well, it turns out that age is one of the highest risks for death and hospitalizations for COVID-19. As each group gets older and older, the risk for hospitalization and death increases quite a bit. But the same step also occurs with comorbid conditions. People with no conditions have basically the baseline risk, but with every added condition like diabetes, high blood pressure, obesity, it increases the risk of somebody needing to go to the hospital or dying. And when people come in initially, they also have a risk associated with needing hospitalization or perhaps dying from COVID-19. People who come in with mild symptoms like no viral pneumonia, no hypoxemia, those people end up doing pretty well. However, some people present with moderate symptoms and they already have viral pneumonia or no hypoxemia, though they still need to be evaluated in the hospital or at least in the clinic to see whether or not they need to go in the hospital. And then some people come in already in severe disease, a significantly shorter breath, uh, low oxygen levels, probably have lots of pneumonia already seen on chest x-ray, and they're going to need to be admitted to the hospital rather quickly. Interestingly, also racial and ethnic disparities impact COVID-19. And what we've seen is that compared to non-Hispanic whites, American Indians, Alaska Natives, non-Hispanic persons of that group have an increased risk of hospitalization and death, as do Black or African American who are also non-Hispanic, as well as those who are Hispanic or Latino persons have a greater risk of needing the hospital or from dying from COVID-19 once they get it. But a big thing to think about in this situation is that these disparities likely represent structural racism and long-standing barriers to health care that add comorbidities associated with these groups or lack of access to healthcare systems, but it's good for the clinician to understand how this might impact future risk of severe COVID-19. So to summarize, older the person is, the more comorbidities that they have, the greater risk for a progression of their COVID. And that longstanding health disparity across our country has manifested in worse COVID outcomes in the most marginalized and vulnerable communities. Next, we're going to discuss clinical guidelines for treating non-hospitalized patients at higher risk for progression to severe COVID. Let's review the general management of non-hospitalized patients with acute COVID-19. So these are people who are coming in with new symptoms and new diagnosis of COVID-19. So in these outpatients, we need to consider supportive care, use of COVID-specific therapy for these patients, especially those who are at high risk for disease progression, and taking steps to reduce the risk of transmission of the virus within their household or to others, and advising the patients on when to contact a healthcare provider if they do progress in their symptoms. It's also important for patients with symptoms of COVID-19 to be triaged, like with telehealth visits, to determine whether they need the specific therapy or they need in-person care and sometimes even need the hospital. 
and especially those patients with shortness of breath, dyspnea, should be referred for an in-person evaluation by a healthcare provider as soon as possible and should be followed closely during those first few days after the onset of that shortness of breath. If they are worsening, then they hospitalization needs to be considered. Management plans should also be based on the patient's vital signs, physical exam findings, risk factors for progression to severe illness. So when therapy is being considered for high-risk, non-hospitalized adults with mild to moderate COVID-19, so they don't need to go into the hospital perhaps yet, and we're going to use a therapy to keep them out, there are a few therapies that should be considered. One is ritonavir-boosted nermotrelivir, another one is remdesivir, febtilivimab, and then molnupiravir. And there are differences when we're going to use them and the time that they should be used for a person. So let's say somebody comes in with less than five days of symptoms, then ritonavir-boosted nermotrelivir would be used as will monopiravir. But if it's six days or seven days, then we would need to only be able to use remdesivir or beptilumab. And these different treatments are needed at different points throughout the progression of disease. So when somebody comes in, they've been exposed to the virus, everybody starts off who gets infected with no symptoms whatsoever. But the virus catches hold, it goes up. Most people progress to some symptoms that have mild starting off, some progress to moderate and then severe disease. At the beginning, it's all about the virus. At the later stages, it's inflammation and hypercoagulation. So at the beginning, we want to use antivirals. At the end, we'd like to use more immune modulators and anticoagulants. So if we're trying to keep somebody out of the hospital, it's about early disease. So we're going to be focused on antiviral therapy and not immune modulator therapy. So in summary, people with early COVID should be evaluated for antiviral therapy. In the next session, we'll look at the efficacy of these recommended therapies in treating COVID-19. So the COVID pandemic has been long and hard for many reasons, but one of those is that the virus continues to evolve to us. And we've had multiple waves throughout this pandemic, basically giving us multiple pandemics in one, the alpha wave, the beta wave, the delta wave, Omicron variants. And right now, Omicron BA5 is the one that's currently predominant in the United States. Each of these have had impact on greater infectiousness in the community, changes in pathogenesis, but also the effectiveness of various therapies. So what is the efficacy of our treatment options that we have currently for outpatient COVID patients? For the preferred regimens, ritonavir-boosted nermotrelivir and remdesivir, they both have efficacy around 90% of keeping people out of the hospital and dying. And they are both expected to be active against Omicron BA2 and BA5. Another alternative is molnupiravir and beptilivimab. Molnupiravir has an efficacy that we know of around about 30% of keeping people out of the hospital or dying. And beptilivimab, there's not really a lot of data, but this monoclonal antibody should still have efficacy against Omicron. What is no longer recommended is another monoclonal antibody called sotrivimab which should not still have activity against Omicron, even though when it was tested under Delta, it had efficacy around 85%. In summary, we have basically had multiple pandemics in one. With each new variant, there's increased infectivity and changes in pathogenesis and drug susceptibility. Next, we'll review the safety profiles of the recommended therapies. Each of the therapies that we have available for COVID-19 to keep people out of the hospital have differences in their adverse events and drug-drug interactions, et cetera. So we need to keep those in mind as we are prescribing these for patients that have COVID-19. 
One of the recommended ones, ritonavir boosted nermotrelivir, oftentimes patients may have bad taste or diarrhea or hypertension. And we saw more of those conditions compared to placebo in that trial. So it's a good thing to let patients know that that may occur. Another thing that we need to keep in mind for this drug is that if a patient has renal impairment, such as their GFR is less than 60 but greater than 30, then we need to dose adjust this medication for their use. If it's less than 30, then we need to not use this medication at all. Another drug like remdesivir also has some nausea, a little bit of change in taste, probably some changes in smell, but it was very close to what was seen actually in the placebo arm as well. Another drug is alternative is molnupiravir. And in that trial, they saw some diarrhea and nausea, but it was basically the same in both the active arm and the placebo arm. And then with the drug beptilizumab, which is a monoclonal antibody, when they looked at that compared to other monoclonal antibodies or in use with other monoclonal antibodies, they saw some treatment emergent adverse events that were mostly mild, some were moderate, but they didn't have anybody who discontinued the treatment based on an adverse event, and they didn't change therapy based on infusion-related reactions, which was good news. And overall, they had some nausea and some vomiting, but both were less than 1% in that group. So in summary, currently effective therapies for outpatient COVID are fairly well tolerated. And in our final session, we'll outline factors that may affect treatment selection for a given patient. So what are the major factors for selecting a treatment for a specific patient? So therapies needs to be tailored for each patient. And we need to think about the efficacy of an antiviral against circulating variants. We need to think about drug-drug interactions, feasibility of administration. Some of these are oral and some of these are intravenous and availability of that treatment option. One of the big ones that we need to consider is drug-drug interactions specifically with ritonavir-boosted nermotrelivir, which is one of our preferred agents. We need to look at our patients' medications that they're taking at that time, and if they have no expected drug-drug interactions or perhaps they're weak drug-drug interactions, then it is safe to proceed with ritonavir-boosted nermotrelivir. If we see perhaps significant drug-drug interactions that might require dose adjustment or patient counseling or more monitoring, then we can't manage those drug-drug interactions, and we need to strongly consider whether or not to use something else. And one of the ways we do that is, can this co-medication be withdrawn? Is there an alternative option? Can the dosage be adjusted? And can monitoring be set up? And if it can't, then we need to consider another therapy. Another issue is when supplies are limited. Treatments need to be prioritized based on what risks our patients have. In tier one, if a person is immunocompromised, they're not expected to mount an adequate immune response to their vaccination, or they haven't received their vaccination, or they have lots of other underlying conditions, they need to be prioritized for antiviral therapy. Also, unvaccinated people who are at very high risk of severe disease, such as people who are over the age of 75, or have multiple comorbidities should be prioritized in that tier one group. In tier two, it'd be unvaccinated people who are at risk for severe disease, who are, let's say, greater than age 65, has some comorbidities, or maybe even less, but lots of comorbidities. In tier three, this is where we get to the vaccinated people who are still at higher risk. They might be older, have lots of comorbidities, or if they haven't received a booster yet and have lots of those comorbidities. In tier four, also vaccinated people who are at severe risk, but perhaps younger, or people who haven't received their booster in tier four that could be prioritized for treatment. 
So two and a half years in this pandemic, we now have therapies that can help patients from needing the hospital and from dying, but these therapies need to be started early. Each patient needs to be assessed for their risk for disease progression and their need for therapy. And these therapies need to be tailored for the patient, especially considering drug-drug interactions. Thank you for listening. Please visit the activity URL in the episode description to view all program materials, complete the post-test, and get a certificate.